And in Romans chapter 8 this morning, the title of our message is Sinner That I Am. And this is the fourth uh, message in the series, The Whole Gospel. And I'd like to encourage you to um, check out our website and uh, backtrack and listen to some of the sermons, if you've missed any, that lead into this. The title of the message this morning is Sinner That I Am. Sinner That I Am. Last week's, last Lord's Day's message was called Sinners All. And we learned in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and all have fallen short, collapsed, short of being praised by God for their righteousness. This morning, we're going to get just a little more narrowed down, and it's possible that we might even squirm in our seats this morning to just understand just how individually, how particularly, how personally The Bible speaks to you and I about our sinfulness and just how sinful we are. When Romans chapter 8, verse number 7 is our text this morning, and we'll be accompanying it with uh, several other passages. But in verse number 7, the Apostle Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, It cannot. Continues on in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Thus says the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we need truth this morning. Regarding ourselves, regarding you, regarding sin, we want you to give it to us straight. We don't like hearing the truth when it means that we aren't good or good enough. And of ourselves, we would have never heard the truth, and so we praise you this morning, Lord, for the Spirit of God who comes by the ministry of the word and convicts hearts, bringing hearts unto faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, our heart's desire, our sincere prayer this morning is that if there is anyone hearing this message this morning who has not yet submitted, obeyed the gospel, lay down their weapons of hostility and and open their hearts to finally see Jesus and their need for Jesus, oh Lord, would you bring them to your saving mercies this morning and spare them from your wrath? I pray that you would, by the truth of your word, peel back layers of self-deceit and self-righteousness from the sinner's heart this morning and show them their need for Jesus. And then, Father, let us also, who have claimed Christ as our Savior, never forget these first truths, that we, that we must cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ as much today as ever before, pleading only in his cause, in his case, and his blood for the redemption of our souls. And then let us be moved to share this really good news with all who will hear So, Father, use the foolishness of preaching to bring about the transformation of hearts. And may Christ crucified be the message that we all hear this morning. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. 
There are four other passages in the scripture that speaks to the hostility, the evilness, the sinfulness of the human heart. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. The psalmist writes in Psalm 36, 1, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. In Genesis 6, as God speaks to Moses in the preparation of to Noah, in preparation of the building of the ark, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Titus 3, the Apostle Paul pours in his mentoring wisdom into um, Titus by the inspiration of God in Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the description, and furthermore, there's many, many more texts than possibly could even be read as the Bible describes the heart of the sinner, that one who is unclaimed, unconverted by the graces and saving mercies of Jesus Christ. The Bible does not mince words. God's diagnosis of the human heart is piercingly undoing. When we read the condition, when we read these words about ourselves, we would like to turn away. We, we cannot imagine that someone would speak so offensively about our hearts, but the Bible has only just begun to describe how sinful our hearts are. Do you remember when you were growing up and uh, your dad was watering the garden on a hot summer day? And water was coming from the garden hose, and it was so clear and so fresh and cold. And he offered for you to bend down and drink from the hose. How many of you can remember something like that? The best water in all the county, right? Something about hose water. I don't know if they still make clean dirt anymore, but, but that was the days of clean dirt. Good dirt, right? It's good dirt. Who knows where that hose had been? Probably even touched some of the pesticides on the seeds that were being planted on the ground. Uh, we don't know anything about that hose, but here we all still sit. None of us have hoseitis or anything like that, so I think it was okay to drink from. It was a sweet and cold water, wasn't it? Wasn't it the best? Have you ever been working with a hose and maybe you thought it would be fun uh, that there would be a kink in the hose and the person using it. My wife is very trusting and she dutifully, faithfully monitors and loves this little fish pond in our backyard that you're all familiar with. And there's times when she's filling up that fish pond and using the hose and I'll, in order to take a shortcut to cut the water off, I'll kink the hose and boy, am I tempted to become a Presbyterian in that moment and make my wife a Presbyterian and sprinkle her with this hose. 
Something about that king that causes that hose to stop, it's a shortcut, but that's sort of a picture that I want you to have in your mind about a kink in the hose, about how sin affects our lives. Our lives, from the very start, they have a a kink in them. Everything flowing through them, or that should flow through them, doesn't. There's a kink there. Last Lord's Day, we asked the question, how many sinners are there? And we learned that the Bible gives us the answer. All are sinners. All have sinned. And all have collapsed short of the finish line. That is, the, the line of demarcation of being praiseworthy. It didn't matter if, if, if by any human means, uh, that you made it 99% of the way to perfection or, or 1%. Remember that Japanese satellite that fell short of the 238,855-mile trek to the landing on the moon? And it fell short. It didn't matter if it was one mile short. It didn't matter if if, uh, the SpaceX Falcon rocket had blown it to bits right off the launch pad. It fell short. And so every single human being that has walked this earth has fallen short. It doesn't matter if you think you're good or if you've done a lot of good stuff. You've fallen short. There's, there's nothing praiseworthy about falling short. There's no trophy for it. And so last week we learned that the praise of God or the glory of God is the praise of God. It's the approbation, the endorsement, the affirmation, even the applause of God. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the finish line. That finish line being something worthy of praise. And that at stake isn't just the praise and blessing of God, but there's really only two categories of the, the destiny or the determination of people, and that is one, that they would be to the praise of God, or that they would be under the curse of God that is receiving the, uh, the active wrath of God. There's no middle ground. And so either you make it to the glory of God, or you are cursed by God himself. Well, we came to understand that there has not been anyone who has ever been sinless apart from Jesus Christ. Today we're asking the question, not how many sinners are there, like we did last week. We recognize all have sinned and all have fallen short. But this morning we're asking the question, just how sinful am I? I mean, that seemed really general last week. You know, we collapsed short, we're all sinners, and we're all acknowledging that. But, but do I sin intermittently? I mean, do I sin like sometimes and I'm good other times? Or is it just when I intentionally sin that, that I could be called a sinner? But a sinner sins, and so when I sin, does that make me a sinner? Well, three points this morning, I think, will help to clarify that. And first of all, and that is this. What we must understand, what the Bible means when it uses the word sin, we recognize that all sin is sin. All sin is sin. You see, since God is a righteous creator, he created us with a profound intentionality then, then all the nuances, every part of our life, every part of our actions, our overt actions, like our behavior, our expressions, our emotion, our forgetting and neglecting and our remembering, our attitude, even our cognitive processes, they all come out of a, a God-relational heart. God has designed us, he created us, so that every part of our life has to do with him. I remember when uh, dear Cassia, who is ill this morning and not with us, I remember when she, she bowed her knee and confessed Christ 
as her Savior. And I remember she, she had this deep theological statement that just floored me as she prayed to the Lord. And I think she was around four or five years old. And she said, Lord, I know that you created me that I might know you, but I sinned against you and I ask that you forgive me. I was blown away. That was not part of my gospel presentation to her in the previous moments leading up to that. And I thank the Lord for those who had faithfully discipled her and impacted her life in such a way that she would recognize her accountability before a righteous creator who demanded of her perfection, but in that perfection demanded of her or desired from her a relationship so that all of her life had to do with God. And friend, this morning, there is not a part of your life that is outside the territory, that is in a separate category, or excluded from what God demands to be a God-glorifying life in your relationship with Him. Every part of your life has to do with the one whom you live before. There's no new, neat little categories. This is going to be my Christianity and this is for myself, or this is secular, or it's neutral. Every part of our life is meant to be lived out in a God-relational heart. And there isn't anything that we do, and there isn't anything that we don't do. There isn't anything that we think, or that we don't think, that is irrelevant, that doesn't have to do with our relationship with God. And so sin isn't just a vague generalization. It isn't just this vague word, this big word. It kind of means a lot of things all at once. How we live, how people live, and how we live before God is in the details of our life. It's in that, that moment, that, that instant, that situation, not just in the general idea of our life, but in the particular uh, the particular moments and circumstances, the, 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 even the, the lightning flash thoughts of our minds and of our consciences and heart. So our core problem, as the Bible has described it, is sin. And sin isn't a theory. It, it's not something distant. It's not just general. Sin is present here and now and not merely running in the background like a, a desktop wallpaper on your device or your screen. I like how one author, the author of uh, What is the Gospel, Greg Gilbert, said, sin is in us, not just on us. Sin is in us and not just on us, not something we could put on and put off. But Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, for out of the heart that is in us, the very core of our being, for out of the heart come evil thoughts comes murder, comes adulteries, comes sexual immorality, comes theft and false witness and slander. It comes from within. That's where it comes from. One common misunderstanding or, or distortion when talking about sin, when thinking about the, the topic of sin is in the practical definition, it leads to a wrong conclusion then with how to deal with sin. If we don't understand the biblical uh, a definition of sin, the biblical description of sin, then we're going to come up with a wrong remedy for sin. Okay. So there's many misunderstandings and distortions, but one of them is this. The sin is committed only when someone knows to do what is right, but does wrong instead. That that's, that's the definition of sin. That's really the, the boundaries of sin. When someone knows what is right, 
truly right, righteous, morally right, and they willingly do the opposite. They do what's wrong. And we, we would say that would certainly be a sinful behavior according to the scriptures. But in many people's definition, that would be the only definition of sin. And this is a common understanding of sin. And it's generally really a, a very largely and popularly held belief about sin in our world today. Our world thinks people are generally good, and they even think morally good or righteously good, and they're standing before God, until in that one moment, or except for that one moment or two moments, when they slipped and did something wrong. And so this common understanding of sin only refers to that which a person does consciously that is wrong when given the opportunity to do what is right. And it isn't just the world that can think this way, but it can also be Christians, Bible believers who can think this way. But almost all unbelievers view sin in this definition. But in the church, this view has become dangerous because it leads to heresies and false teachings that bring false assurances to the believer who's struggling very deeply with his sin, with sinful behaviors. And really, it's one of the oldest and most believable heresies in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's called in theological textbooks Pelagianism, and sin from this point of view can only be found in what's called willed actions. And so therefore, when someone is caught up in something that has ensnared them, like sin has a tendency to do, like like an addiction, a sinful habit, then now because that sin has become repeated, now we're, we're willing to be, we think it's merciful and say now no longer are they sinning, they just have a disorder. They have a, an addiction. And so we're not going to treat this like a sin. And so now we just need medicine, we need therapy, we need psychiatrists and counselors to come to the rescue because this sin, if we had seen it just in one way, we would be willing to call it sin. But now because it's been a pattern of life, now we're like, oh, well, it's easier than talking about transformation and gospel truth to enter into the heart to remedy this problem. Let's throw some pills at it. Let's make some appointments with some people with, with letters before and after their name. Let's call this something other than sin because then it's, it's going to, um, it's become involuntary. It's an involuntary habit. And so therefore, because it's been involuntary from our perception, it should not be called sin. A drunkard isn't called a sinner. They're called someone with an alcoholic disorder or they have alcoholism. A drug addict isn't a sinner. He's just codependent or substance dependent upon other things. And then we can hear people say, well, this is just how I am. So now since a sin has become a repeated behavior, now it no longer is sin. And therefore, then people are able to make a paycheck. And businesses are able to thrive and corporations are able to disperse pharmaceutical remedies for that which can only deal with in the heart. Sadly, the Christian church has, has largely been duped into this type of thinking with repetitive patterns of sinful behavior, rather than dealing with sin, calling sin, sin, and knowing that there is a promise from God that there can be a remedy. And so the church has effectively denied the power of the gospel and relegated therapy of the human heart 
but not curation of the human heart to the world and secular science. And so this distortion, again, is that there can be some who consciously sin and they would be called sinners because they keep consciously sinning. But those who continue in unrighteous, destructive behavior, well, they're labeled as having a, a mental illness or, or being a victim of demon possession or some, order dis, some other disorder, or we have something that just keeps rolling out more and more as the science of the brain seems to be um, uh, co- continuing on in the laboratories and in the classrooms, we come up with more and more syndromes and disorders. Well, the fact is that the Bible helps clarify from the great physician the real problem of the human heart is indeed sin. And when we see sin in people's lives, we ought to be, we ought to be empowered, we ought to be hopeful, because we know what the remedy is for sin. It isn't an enigma to us. It isn't a great puzzle. It isn't something to be solved. We know the answer. And so we don't relegate that answer to any other place than the great physician. Imagine, if you will, coming to um, uh, hearing the story about a murder scene. And the criminal has left countless clues about what he has done. Probably many of you, if not all of you, enjoy a good murder mystery, and uh, I try not to watch them too much with my wife because she always tells me who did it before it. And I'm just sitting there totally uh, baffled until the very last second when Columbo says, that so-and-so did it, or whoever, Matlock, I was hearing about Matlock the other day, or whoever it is, and she figures everything out. And so, thankfully now, she's starting to learn not to blurt it out and ruin, take the suspense away. I won't even watch previews of the things that we watch because I don't even want to know even what it's about. So, very trusting here, just being very vulnerable and transparent about our marriage right now. But a crime scene, you come to a crime scene or you hear the story, and, and so here's, here's, the, here's the clues from the criminal, okay? An hour before the crime had been committed, um, he was heard in the restaurant making loud threats. And then at the crime scene, he dropped his business card, And then he stood in front of the surveillance camera that took pictures every three seconds during the crime, but faced the camera. He left fingerprints everywhere, including on the gun, which lay beside the body in which he had purchased the gun three days earlier. He made a credit card call on the victim's telephone moments after the crime. He was collared running away from the scene wearing blood-splattered clothes with the blood identified as the victim's. And then when under questioning, when brought into the police headquarters, he was extremely agitated and he alternated between contradictory excuses and, and then also just broken remorse, weeping over confessing that he truly did it. But imagine further then. 
that as the detectives are putting all these pieces together, that they are committed to finding someone else who must have done this crime. Imagine with all of the previous evidences, the detectives are sure that this person did not commit the crime. You see, those who look upon sin and try to figure it out from an unbiblical perspective can't help to hear and see the clues of sin screaming out, but they still want to reinterpret all the clues and say, surely it isn't this person. Surely it isn't me. This is the condition of the unbelieving heart. It cannot fathom the guiltiness and the weight of evidence that has completely indicted them with the charges of hostility before God. It cannot fathom, the unbelieving heart cannot fathom the weight and the depth and the breadth of the offense that they have brought before God of themselves when they look at all the clues that point to the heart, their own heart, and say, you are guilty. They say, there must be someone else you're looking for. The Bible's view of sin certainly includes includes high-handed sins where evil approaches full volitional awareness, where where it is done with with a a full-mindedness and a headiness. But sin also includes who we simply are and the perverse ways in which we think, the broken ways in which we desire things, the way in which we remember and forget and even react. And so the Bible's view of sin is that we have committed a crime and we are guilty. We are the murderer. We need to do something that is very difficult and, in fact, It's humiliating, and that is we need to look at our sin. And so number two, we need to see sin. Sin, most sin, it's it's invisible because it simply is how the sinner works, how the sinner perceives, how they want, how they desire things, how they interpret things. And once we see sin for what really it is, it's, it's madness, it's insanity, it's evil intentions in our hearts, the absence of any fear of God and, and our enslavement to, to whatever we want to do, then it becomes easier to see how sin is the immediate and specific problem and not just a general and remote problem, not just a generalization. Oh, yeah, everybody sins. Oh, yeah, I've sinned. But the core insanity, the core brokenness, the unthinkable thing of the human heart is that we violate, first of all, the first great commandment in all of Scripture, and that is that we will love anything except for God. This is what is the undoing of the human heart. This is what decimates our pride. This is what brings the diagnosis that we are a sinner, that we love anything, and that we will desperately love anything other than God. Oh, I will love anything other than God first. Even if it's something silly. Even if it's something destructive and harmful. Even if it's something that, as Isaiah said, you, you cut down trees 
you put half of it into your fireplace and the other half of it you worshipped. And what do we do? We will do anything other than love God firstly, as in silly ways as that. And except for God checking our hearts by grace, we will live out that way. But people do not tend to see sin as applying to an unconscious problem that is an ongoing background problem in our life. Not only is it the overt actions, the demonstrable actions such as murder, adultery, and those things, but it is even an unconscious problem to the deep and interesting and bedeviling stuff in our hearts. But God's description of sin often highlights the unconscious aspect of sin. Not only does God call us out and helps us to identify the, the moments of sin, but God also is able to look behind the scene, aha, well, the reason why you're doing this is because do you see what's going on here? Is the background the true problem, the unconsciousness aspect of sin. We are under the power of sin. We are unable to break away from this power. You see, sin rules over us. Sin rules over us. It rules over our understanding, and it rules over our wills, our desires, our passion. And when we get glimpses of God's glory, we shield our eyes. Because it's too bright, and we're really actually disgusted by the sight of perfection. This is what caused us to drive Jesus to the cross. We could not stand someone so perfect because it made us recognize how imperfect and broken and, and stained we are. Guilty. So we drive Jesus to the cross, and so we turn away from his glory. We are enslaved to sin, and we cannot help but obey sin. And so that is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, the flesh is me without God, without his saving grace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. So Jesus came to rescue us. He came to deliver us from the power of our sin and from sins themselves. But there's more to it than that. Jesus came to save, deliver, and rescue us from ourselves wholly. A, a whole gospel for a whole soul. A whole gospel for a whole person. A whole gospel for your whole will, for your whole mind, for your whole heart, for your whole life, for your whole eternity. Jesus came to bring this, this layer upon layer of wholeness and perfection and deliver us wholly from not only the power of sin, but its innate presence, its inherent presence in our lives. This is a whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Not merely from the one or two, or maybe even hundred things that we have done, but Jesus came to save us from our very being, from our very nature, from our very condition, from our very selves. We are thoroughly and inherently sinful. We are full of sin to the brim and overflowing. And if someone bumps into us, it comes out. It's overflowing continuously. So we are so full of sin. And the Bible even says that we are even dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.1. 
And so we are so sinful. We are so sinful that we even need help to see sin. That's how sinful we are. We can't even comprehend the depths of our own sinfulness without God's help. We are that dead in our sin. We are that defensive about our sin. We need God's help. So we need, we need, we need all sin is sin. We see sin, but we need to understand thoroughly a third truth that the Bible reveals to us, and that is sin deceives. Sin deceives. Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet speaks. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin, the desires that we pursue, the beliefs that we hold, the, the habits we obey as we might say second nature, but really we kind of mean the first nature, but, but is intrinsically deceitful. Sin is deceitful. If we knew we were deceived, we would not be deceived. But we are deceived, and unless awakened through God's truth and spirit, then we will not know we are deceived. Sin is a darkened mind. It's, it's a drunkenness. It's, an, it's like an animal-like instinct. It's full of compulsion, madness, slavery, ignorance. It's like a being in a stupor. And people often think that if we... That to define sin as that background thing we talked about, that unconsciousness, they think that if we define sin as unconscious condition, then that removes human responsibility. It's just how I am. I mean, I'm not really that responsible for it. It's, it's how I am. It's what I do. It's who I am. But how can we be culpable for what we did not sit down and choose to do? How can God come to you and say, well... You're a sinner, and you're guilty, and you deserve to be punished and judged for that sin. And we might say, but if you're saying that my sin is also unconscious, how can God have the right to condemn me for that which I'm not willingly doing? You know, I'm not participating actively in working out this sin. But the Bible takes the opposite direction on this. The unconscious, or we could say the semi-conscious nature of much of sin simply testifies to the fact that we are so steeped in it that we sin even when we don't know we're sinning. That's the unconsciousness of the condition of sin. Sinners think and want and act sin-like by nature, by nurture, and by practice. We instinctively return evil for evil. All our actions, our thoughts, and motives are like that garden hose idea they're kinked. Nothing's going to come out. It's good. It's kinked from the very get-go. So when people see sin only as willed actions, those demonstrable things that we can see the effects of, murder and those things, when people see sin only as willed actions, then they have to invent other categories to cover the unconscious or the general background stuff, they, um, they tend to think, you know, there can be few people in this world who are really consciously bad people. Praise the Lord, by the way, in God's common grace that we live in a society where 
where there tends to not be necessarily that many consciously bad people around us. And, but they would be, those consciously bad people, well, our prisons are full of them, or should be full of them. We would call them sinners. But everybody else, well, they might commit, you know, intermittent or few sinners. And that excuse, again, given is, of course, we're all sinners. It's just a flippant. It's a generic comment. And so we learn from the scriptures that we cannot perceive just how deeply sin has invaded, how much part of our lives it is, because we are entirely biased and blind to sin. Sin has kinked, it has blurred our vision for ourselves, and so we need help seeing sin the right way. Really, actually, sin blinds while preserving the illusion of seeing. Sin blinds while making you feel like you can really actually see. That's how deceitful sin is. We can't see ourselves for who we are without the right lenses. Someone has to bring the right lenses to us so that we can see who we are rightly. We need an external, unbiased opinion, diagnosis. We only see skewed images of ourselves. Even if we are to admit that we are sinners, we still have just touched the surface in vague generalities. We are too biased. We are entirely blind to see just how utterly sinful we are without someone else's help. We need the Word of God to help us see who we are like God sees us. It's only then that we will hear and believe what is true about ourselves, sin, and our need for a Savior. Many years ago, when the children were little, Jennifer and I uh, took the children to one of their first little amusement parks. It was a very little amusement park found in York, Maine. It was almost like any sort of a county fair. It was kind of that small. The children were fascinated by it, and there was one... There was one uh, fair thing there with all the different mirrors. And some of the mirrors made you look, you know, like you had a big head, like this big, and then a tiny body, you know. And some of the mirrors made you look really wide in a certain part of your body. And the children were fascinated, and they kept going back and looking into the mirror to see if maybe their image had changed, you know. It was such a distortion, and it was a comical caricature caricature. It was, it was meant to, to bring amusement. But listen, folks, there's nothing amusing and there's really nothing hopeful about having a wrong view of who you are. And every person in this world, every human being must come to the humbling point in their life where they are willing to let their creator tell them who they are. And it is only with his accurate portrayal his accurate reflection, his accurate telling of who they are, that they can come into square, where they can come into a realization of truly who they are, because they cannot, and you and I cannot, self-assess. We cannot self-medicate. We cannot bring self-righteousness into the equation. We need an external force to show us who we are because we are entirely blind. We are so sinfully and deeply sinfully biased 
against ourselves that we cannot know. We need help. We need a mirror. And that mirror needs to tell us all the truth. It needs to give us the right image. And this is where we find the scriptures and the very word of God to be the very absolute truth that every sinner needs to come to the hearing and the believing upon the word of truth. Well, the verdict from God for how he deals with hostility, how he deals with sinfulness, how he deals with trespassers and lawbreakers, the verdict for God with how he deals with this rebellion among his creation is a very sobering verdict. It is actually a very utterly horrifying verdict. In Romans 3.19, the Bible says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is an unimaginable moment in time to come. No one will have an answer or excuse before God when he holds them accountable to the law that he has written. There will be no acceptable pleas. There'll be no grounds for a good case. There'll be no explanation. The mouths of those who are unrighteous on that final day will be wordless, speechless, utterly silent. It will be apparent that nothing on that day will appease the holy and righteous judge. The whole world may be held accountable to God and every mouth may be stopped. Because God is righteous, because God is holy, he cannot excuse sin. He can't excuse the sinner. The way that he must deal with sin, in order to be consistent with himself and his own nature, the way that he must deal with sin is to give sin its reward, to give sin and the sinner its payment. And in Romans 6, 23, the Bible says, for the wages, the paycheck, the reward of sin is death. What sin and sinners deserve is death. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God will actively judge sin on that day. The Bible teaches that the destiny of all sinners is a place of eternal torment that the Bible labels as hell. This is a place described as receiving God's active and perpetual wrath without relief. There is no mercy in hell. There is no grace in hell's gates. The Bible uses the words like lake of fire and unquenchable fire to describe hell's torment. These are even the words of Jesus. 
And there is no advantage to diminish in diminishing or softening the language that is used to describe this place. And sometimes Christianity is really zinged, is really criticized for having a belief in a hell. But listen, what advantage is it if you were to warn drivers of a bridge that was out and tell them that it wouldn't really be as deadly if they just drove more carefully towards the chasm that the broken bridge had left? The bridge is out. Stop. Don't go any further. You will plunge to your death. There is no love and no mercy in softening the warning. Oh, drive slowly towards the bridge that is out. You'll be okay. We don't like the fact that the bridge is out. Now, Christians, we don't, we don't like that there is a place that is a separation from God. And we wish things would be different. But we can't change the fact that the bridge is out, and we can't change the fact that there is a hell. And so, too, when speaking about the destiny of those who refuse to come to Christ, we must not change or alter or soften the message even to the smallest degree. There is disaster ahead. And so we take the same spirit. We take the same attitude as the Apostle Paul when in Ephesus. He says, therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Listen, we warn. The bridge is out, but we warn with tears. Everyone, all people, all individuals, every single one of you in this room, every single one in the hearing of this word, and every single one outside the hearing of this word, Everyone is held accountable unto the holy and righteous God of all creation. And if it weren't for Jesus, we would all race towards the bridge. And we would plunge to our death. But there is Jesus. And if he tarries, we will learn of him, of his saving mercies, in two Lord's days from now. Well, let me admonish you this morning, even if this morning in the hearing of the word of God, your heart has become convicted. If the spirit of God has come to you this morning and has just undone some stuff in your heart, has revealed to you that truly you are the one being described by the scriptures as one who does not know God. Well, this morning you can know God, this God who says, I will rescue you. I will deliver you. This morning, throw yourself before the Lord and plead for his mercy. I would love to talk with you about that this morning. There are some ladies, other men in here who love, but you cannot, you cannot leave here today heading for the chasm where the bridge is out. But Christians here this morning, we're alerted too of just how sinful sin is even in our lives. Sin doesn't change just because it's been, we've been sanctified and forgiven. It's a horrible mess in our lives. God in the gospel and in this word this morning calls unto you to, to, to renew in your heart a tenderness towards sin, a life led in repentance of sin, a, a softness, a, a distaste towards sin. For this sin that we commit, even as Christians, is still the same sin that led Jesus to the cross. 
So let's live like people who despise that which led our Savior to the cross. Well, let's pray.